1: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to show 561. I am your toast. What was I there? Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, I forgot what I was there for a split nanosecond. Well, this cold has bitten in, man. Oh, I have got... got a dirty little secret on. I've got my long johns on. <laughs> yes! Long johns on for November. That's the way to go here. This, this kitty can rock it. So, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. It is, like I say, it's getting very close to the end of the month. And it is Mr. Gigi Campanella with his science news. Then we have... The main fiction, which is an original to Starship Sova, to plant a tree by Adam racunas That is all coming to today. Sure, I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now listen. For about three weeks now, I don't think we've had maybe one person come over to Patreon. Well, are we saving up for Christmas? Is that what it is? Come on, we're doing this, man. This help out little Christmas bonus. Pop over to Patreon and. Do the thing, get all the free nice goodies, ad-free, no adverts, (laughs) that in itself, for two, two dollars, and then you can say two euros there, two dollars would be fantastic, a little bit more would be even more brilliant, so please do that. We are on a 430, we lost one through the week as well, so we're not, mate, we're just static, man, come on, bloody hell, man. Week in, week out, you get this fiction. We help you to be like amazing people there. Listening to this. If you can, that would be fantastic. So we'll get into the main fiction, and like I say, it is To Plant a Tree by Adam Rakunas. This story, as you know, original to Starship Sofa. Adam Rakunas is the author of the Philip K. Dick nominated Windswept. And its sequel, Like a Boss. His short fiction has a PRD in com, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and Starship Sofa. A former Southern Californian, he and his family now live in the Pacific Northwest. And there's two links there. If you can go and say hello to Adam, pop over to this side. And this story is narrated by Kate Lechler. When she's not teaching or editing, Kate writes about genetically engineered unicorns from a lawn chair in a carport in Oxford, Massachusetts. She is a graduate of the Tau Tool- Toolbox and has had work appeared in Podcastle, Fireside Fiction and Metamorphosis, amongst other places. And you can find it. And again, there's two links there to Kate's sites. So the Starship Shriver is a very proud present. To
2: plant a tree. By Adam Racunas. As Fu staggered out of the wreckage, she knew she was going to curse. That was a given. Suffer reentry, crack up, smash into poisoned moon, curse up a blue streak. It would have to be a curse so singular, so powerful, that it would be worth the 500 cc's of air. She'd been writing navigation long enough to know not to waste air, even when she was screwed. Especially when she was screwed. So it wasn't worth yelling at this dung heap moon it couldn't help being a poisonous rock on the ass end of occupied space it wasn't worth yelling at the remains of the UAU the independent hauler she'd managed to navigate here before its spectacular suborbital flameout hell it had been a miracle that death trap held together long enough for her to suit up and bail out no the only thing worth swearing at now was the reason why she'd risked a job on the UAU "'for its under-the-table hazard pay, "'the memorial park manager at Chengzi City. "'The smug jerk had wanted 50,000 yuan "'for a spot in their grove. "'50k, just to plant some cremains and a seedling. "'I hope my life insurance is enough "'to cover the expense, you dog fart!' "'She yelled, her voice ringing in her helmet. "'Fuck your ancestors to the 18th generation!' A polite beep filled her helmet, followed by a gentle man's voice advising her to conserve oxygen. Fu cackled and shook her head. Light years from civilization and her only company was another nagging man. Terrific. Fu steadied herself and watched the pea-soup green sky. Bright streaks of gold and red smeared across the upper atmosphere. The remains of the UAU and her idiot crew A few burned straight into the ground a few kilometers off. The chunky air muffled the whump of each impact. She didn't bother wondering if anyone would come to the crash site. The wildcatters squatting here weren't likely to stop their pharmacule mining just to help out. Not when there was a fortune to be made in extracting weird organic compounds from the atmosphere. Fu didn't like it, but she could respect it. She worked for a living, too. She flicked through the panel of buttons on her left forearm. The suit informed her that her breathing supply would last 19 hours, 16 minutes and 45 seconds. She could add two hours of supplemental air by opening her filtered intakes to maximum, which she did. The air inside her helmet immediately took on the whiff of sour milk, thanks to trace amounts of pharmacules. She dug through her ruined escape pod. The survival gear was just as crap as the ship a rescue beacon that gave a single, sad beep before blinking out, a thousand calories of energy gels that had expired six years ago, and three bags of brown water. Fu sighed as she put the gels into the Kevlar packs velcroed to the surface of her EVA suit. The suit was her own, so she knew it wouldn't malfunction on her. She swiped another button, and a map filled the inside of her helmet's face bowl, she was 177 kilometers from London Crater, where the UAU was supposed to deliver her cargo. With the lighter gravity, she figured she could walk seven and a half kilometers per hour. That meant she'd be within shouting distance of London right when she became unable to shout. Great. You should have taken another gig, said a man's voice, higher than the suits. Foo stiffened though that would make sense, and since when does Fu Wenguo do the sensible thing? Fu turned and started. Someone in an EVA suit stood there. The reflective screen was down over the face bowl, so Fu could only see her own puzzled face staring back. The new arrival whipped up the shield, and Fu's confusion turned to anger as Zhigang smiled at him. She stared at him for half a minute. Oh, this just gets better and better. Come on, Wen Wen, said Jigang. You know I'm right. That ship was terrible. Fu's head suddenly went light, and tiny bubbles floated across her vision. She leaned on her thighs, panting. Her chest felt tight. Everything spun. What are you doing here? You're dead. He crouched in front of her, his smiling moon face framed by his snoopy cap. You think you can leave me behind? You gotta try harder than that. Fu gasped and gagged from the foul air in her suit. I'm trying harder than you know. I'm going to get you your tree, got it? It hurt to breathe. Her air hurt. Fu focused on the readouts hovering on the inside of her face bowl and saw the O2 meter was an ugly shade of yellow. The filters couldn't handle the pharmacules. She punched at the buttons until the suit shut the filters and cycled out the air. The sour smell faded, as did Zhigang. Fu shook her head as she breathed. Bye, Ji. You're too far, Wen, he said, his face melting to dust, leaving nothing but an empty helmet. Not far enough, she said. Suit vanished, and Fu saw the O2 light turn a bright, friendly green. The light is green, the breathing's clean, just like she said in training. She coughed, then punched up the map again. The falling debris she'd seen earlier had landed along her route to London. Maybe some air tanks survived the crash. Her head didn't think so, but her gut said it was worth checking out. Twenty years working navigation, and she'd learned to always trust her gut, no matter what her head or her ovaries told her. An hour later, she stood on the crest of a rust-colored dune overlooking a burning junkyard. She followed the trail of blackened metal chunks until she saw something familiar, a thin steel square with the International Radiation Trefoil stamped on it. Her eyes followed the scorched ground until she saw a 10-meter-high, 50-meter-long pile of twisted metal that had once been the UAU's drive section and cargo hold. Despite her suit's hardening, its Geiger counter chattered more than she liked. Even if the hold had been stuffed with bow and heroin, she wasn't going anywhere near it. Fu walked off in the general direction of a way when something leaped out from behind a pile of wreckage and tackled her. A weight crushed her chest, and Fu stared into a mouthful of needles. A long, blood-red snake lolled out and swiped across her face bowl. "'Gun Kai!' she yelled. Flailing her arms until they connected with a metal thunk. The snake retracted, and Fu heard a crackle of speakers. Gunkai, Kai, said the thing, but with Fu's voice. Then it barked at her. All of Fu's tension turned to disgust. She shoved hard enough to get the thing off her chest. She sat up and wiped the lubricant off her face bowl as the UAU's dog barked and panted away. Every ship had a dog, a little mech that could squeeze into tight places to do repairs or catch pests, but she'd never met one like the UAUs. It bit the deck plates, then puked back slabs, slimy, degraded metal. It jumped on people, even after they'd zapped the thing with a prod. Hell, the dog, and the fact that no one had named it was just another red flag, was so screwed up that it couldn't even talk normal like every other mutt she'd worked with. The dog was everything that was wrong about the UAU writ large, and now she was stuck on a toxic turd of a planet with the damn thing. Git! She waved it off as she trudged toward London. The dog whined, and Fu turned to see it thumping its tail into the dust. Go! Gundan! She grabbed a chunk of metal, a hatch handle, she noticed, and hurled it at the dog. The bulky EVA suit hindered her throw, and the handle careered off into the dust. The dog kept wagging away, and Fu tssst. The more time she wasted with this idiot machine, the less air she'd have. She walked off. Fu hadn't gone a minute when the dog trotted past her, the hatch handle in its jaws. It set the metal bar down, and Fu picked it up as she walked past. This time she got a good throw that landed the handle in the middle of the UAU's wreckage. There! she said, never stopping her walk, and don't come back unless you find something useful like air or porn. The dog bounded off, all legs and tail. Foo slogged on. Maybe if she got over that next rise of dunes, the dog would forget about her. The dog flashed in front of her, a paper-wrapped bundle in its mouth. Foo caught a glance of skin, then stopped in her tracks. She stooped down, her mouth open in amazement. It was a stack of scorched porn mags. The dog barked, and Fu could swear she saw a grin on its face. So now you understand me? She punched up the ship's manifest and said, Let's see what else you can understand. Part of her job was helping the cargo master make sure the ship's weight was within jump tolerances. If the UAU was off by a few grams, the jump would fail and spin them into oblivion. Fu hadn't been paying attention to anything but weight. Now she poured over the manifest and found 12 gross type C EVA filters, better than type A's she had, all sitting in the hold. Okay, dog, she said. Go get suit filters. Suit filters! The dog yipped and ran off into the pile. Fu reran her numbers. Without having to worry about air, she could push and be in London in a day. Granted, she'd have to choke down the spoiled energy gel, but food poisoning wouldn't kick in for a few days, right? Minutes later, the dog returned, dragging a sealed cargo crate in its jaws. It was a little bigger than she figured, but hey, twelve-gross of anything could take up room. She patted the dog on the head and popped the clasps on the crate's sides. The top loosened with a hiss. Fu tossed the lid away and tore into the sheets of packing foam, feeling like a kid at Christmas. The crate was full of metal chopsticks. She shook her head just to be sure she wasn't hallucinating. There were thousands of chopsticks all bundled and stacked. She nodded to herself a few times before she realized her entire body shook. Fu picked up a bundle, wondered if she could stab through the dog's skull into its tiny, tiny electronic brain. Air filters! She roared, waving the chopsticks in the dog's face. I wanted air filters! Now get back in there before... Her face bowl lit up with warnings. Radiological alarm, said the suit. Please evacuate the area. Radiological alarm. She looked at the shattered drive. It strobed a sickly, bright green, its intensity growing every second. Fu knew enough to recognize a runaway core, and she shot to her feet. Red compass arrows flashed across her face bowl as her suit gave her the best escape route. A runaway wasn't hot enough to immolate her, but it could still overpower the suit's hardening. She ran as the suit ticked off increasing gamma ray counts, ran until her lungs burned and her legs ached from the suit's awkward, stumbling gait. And all this time, the dog ran around her, leaping and barking. As the suit announced the drive approached criticality, she got to the top of a dune and threw herself over. Fu tumbled down the rocky mount grunting at every stone that found its way into a soft spot in the suit. She tripped and rolled until she came to a halt at the bottom, flat on her back. The world lit up with one lightning flash, turning the sky neon green. The dust swirled over her, and Fu had never felt so small, so naked, or so angry. The light show died down, and she regained the presence of mind to run environmental checks. The air was full of radioactive garbage, but nothing the suit couldn't handle. The dune had protected her from the brunt of the blast. She had survived whole and in one piece. She laughed and pushed herself onto her belly. A pair of sneakers walked in front of her. Fu looked up at Kang. He wore off-duty sweats. You okay? he asked, holding out a hand. Fu looked at the hand, calloused and rough. She grunted to her feet noting that her right thigh hurt. Great. One more thing to slow her down. You know, if you just sit tight, that explosion will bring a rescue party, he said. We can hang out and talk while you wait. There's nothing to talk about. You're just a hallucination from the pharmacules, and why are you still here, said Fu. I pumped you out clicks ago. There's still a little bit left in your system, he said. Stress activates them. Well, since the stress isn't stopping anytime soon, I suppose I'm stuck with you forever. Shigang's smile just sharpened, and Fu readied herself for something stinging. I'm only here because you want me to be here, he said. Fu snorted, trying not to laugh. I seriously doubt that, she said. The only reason I'm here is because of you. You and your stupid tree. Shigang thumped her on the side of her helmet. And Fu reeled back, her head ringing. You bonehead, he said. There were plenty of good-paying, honest jobs for you. On ships piloted by our friends, spat Fu. That would have been just peachy. She snorted. You know, the UAU wasn't too bad now that I think about it. At least the crew kept to themselves. Because they were all too sick from radiation poisoning, said Jigang. Remember how they were all green? The ship had bad lighting. And glowing. Fu inhaled, ready to give him the business when she noticed the sour milk smell was back, stronger than ever. She checked her O2 supply. It was slipping away, down to five hours' worth. You're too far when? Too far away. And I'm not getting any closer, she yelled. You get out of my brain, she Her right leg twitched, and she reached down to massage it. Her suit felt thinner, more like long underwear. She looked, and her stomach fell away. A massive tear curled around the suit from her kneecap to the back of her thigh. The leaking air misted away, and Fu's eyes watered as she got an unfiltered faceful of pharmacules. She looked up. Shi Gang was now on fire, his black hair turning red before it burst into a thousand sparkling flames. You're too far, Wen, he said. And then there were a hundred, a thousand, a million Qigangs, their tracksuits turning black, their eyes lit with flame. They all spoke at once, their voices ringing in her helmet like a church choir. You're too far from me. Her lungs searing, she fumbled for the repair kit on her hip. Her hand hit nothing, and Fu twisted around, trying to find it in the murk. She staggered up the dune. She had to get up the dune to find her pack. She had to find her pack so she could fix her suit, so she could go home, so she could get away from a world now filled with burning, chanting men. I wanted air filters! Fu shook her head. The dog bounded toward her, her voice crackling from the speakers in its head. The patch kit sat in its mouth. Come here, croaked Fu, reaching out her hands straining to grab the pack. The dog whuffed and tucked its head under Fu's palm before dropping the pack at her feet. Fu snatched up the Kevlar box and tore it open, slapping patches on her thigh until the outflow stopped. The air inside was still noxious and her eyes watered and her nose ran and she was having trouble seeing straight. She slapped at the panel on her forearm until the stink cycled away, replaced with sweet, sweet oxygen. "'You're still too far, Wen,' said Shikang. He was back in a flight suit, one that was torn and smudged with soot. He held out his arms to her, his sleeves rolled up and his skin bright red, like he'd washed them in food coloring. "'I can't reach you, Wen. Can you come in?' "'Go away,' she said, panting out the last of the poison. She closed her eyes and put her helmet in her hands. "'Just go away,' When Fu opened her eyes again, the dog was in her face, snuffling away. She looked past its jet-black eyes and saw they were alone. Fu gave the dog a gentle pat on its muzzle. All right, she said. You did good, but I still need air filters. Can you find those? The dog whuffed and shook its head. What do you mean, no? said Fu, pointing back to the UAU. Go get me an air filter! The dog leapt to its feet and tore up the dune. Fu checked her air supply. Between the tear and the cycling, she was down to two hours. She had had plenty of close scrapes with death. Bar fights with gigantic men, miscalculated jumps, marriage. But never one with this long-awaiting period. Two hours? She ran through the charts in her head, and every path toward London ended with her out of air in the middle of nowhere. The dog trotted back with something in its mouth. For a brief moment, Fu let herself feel a tiny spark of joy, one that fizzled, the bundle of chopsticks in the dog's mouth. She didn't bother to waste breath. She just snatched the bundle out of the dog's jaws and hurled it into the wastes. The dog looked at her and whined. What? she said. You think I'm going to pat you on the head for that? I need to breathe, you pile of junk, not play fetch! The dog looked at the bundle, then back to Fu. Fu snorted. Don't give me that look. I'm too busy figuring out how not to die. The dog ran off, grabbed the bundle, and returned. This time, though, it set the chopsticks down at its feet and nosed them toward Fu, giving her a look of doggy atonement. Fu wanted to yell at the thing, but it wouldn't do any good. She remembered past fights with Zhigang, when they'd been up all night screaming at each other and she'd just shut down. The only things to do were make up or leave. She reached out for the bundle, and the dog backed away, giving its tail a single wag. The chopsticks were steel cylinders that tapered to a sharp point. The wrapper looked ready to fall apart, probably from the dog's lubricant saliva, but the hard nub of the bundle's RFID tag still held together. Just for kicks, she held it to a sensor on her wrist. Lot 4526A, said the suit. Liao, Consolidated Manufacturing Concern Particulate Processing Unit, Mark 4. Would you like a command interface? Fu stared at the bundle. To do what? The PPU uses nano hooks to capture particulate matter from the atmosphere, leaving clusters of desirable material for later processing. What good will this do me? I'm sorry, but I cannot respond. I require more input. Well, I require more air, but I bet you'll live longer. There was a brief pause, and Fu could swear she heard her suit humming, the same way Shigang would when he was going over household expenses. The bundle twitched and flexed against the wrapper. It buzzed, strong enough for the feeling to run up Fu's arm. A lone chopstick popped up like a card out of a magician's deck. Please install the unit in the ground. It requires an anchor point. Fu plucked the stick from its mates and jammed it into the hard pack. It vibrated, then began to grow longer, like a piece of stretching taffy. A sudden gust of wind battered at the stick, and Fu dove to shield it with her body, though she immediately felt foolish. What, the wind's going to take away my stick? There was a faint crackle, and the stick, now a meter long, split at the tip into three branches. These, in turn, began to grow before they too split. Thirty seconds later, the chopstick had turned into a three-meter-tall tree. Granted, it was as thin as a collection of toothpicks, and its spindly branches threatened to blow away, but the thing was definitely a leafless, silver tree. Foo looked at the dog, its tail thumping away in the dust. Please step away from the unit said the suit. Extraction will begin in ten seconds. Fu took a few tentative steps back and the dog slunk behind her knees. Her hand reached back to pat the dog's head, as much to steady herself as to reassure the dog. The tree shivered like it was taking a breath. There was a poof and its branches were covered in a thick red dust. The sound startled the dog and Fu patted its head. Easy, dog, she said. It's just science within a minute, the branches were now thick with clumps of multicolored fuzz, like pollen on a bee's legs. It was like watching winter in reverse. The barren tree grew lush with red and gold clusters as the nanofilters pulled pharmacules out of the air. She walked up to the tree, its limbs reaching up to the murky sky as they continued to split. She leaned in close, her helmet's face bowl almost touching the clusters. As she focused on the thin hairs of the nanofilter, something changed on her HUD. The O2 light was now a bright, friendly green. Fu blinked. That can't be right. Recheck sensors. A moment later, the suit said, All sensors nominal. As she stepped away from the tree, the light cycled to yellow, then orange to an angry red. She returned to the tree, and it was autumn to spring as she stood with her face against a branch. If the light is green, the breathing's clean. woo cow," gasped Fu, and she looked at the bundle of sticks in her gloved hands, before turning to the dog. "'You,' she said, "'are a good dog.' The dog woofed. Fu got to work. An hour later, she sat in the middle of a cluster of trees, her air tanks filling with the cleanest air she'd ever tasted. The branches overlapped each other, forming a canopy that surrounded her on all sides. The fuzz was now so thick that it effectively shut out the wind, not to mention the light. Fu had cracked one of the glow sticks in her survival pack and hung it from the tab on her suit's chest plate. Everything was now neon green, from the clusters on the branches to the dog's metal body. Not out of the woods yet, thought Fu, then caught herself with a snorting laugh. Every other stupid tree-related cliché popped into her head, and she knew it was all Zhigang's fault. All those stupid word games you like to play when they were on the job. How many words can you make out of the name of this crate? How many colony names can you find on this manifest? How many ways can I list how screwed I still am, Xigong said Fu. The dog lifted its head off the ground and stared at her. How many ways? it said back to her, her voice distorted by the dog's speakers. Fu rested her bubble head against her hand and thought, Well, maybe not that screwed. She could break the trees down, walk until her tanks got low, and replant her little tent until she got to London. Air wasn't a problem. Everything else was. Fu pounded the dirt. She had no way off this rock. She had no one to sue since the UAU had been unlicensed, and there was no way to buy that damn tree. I don't suppose I could sell you, could I? She asked the dog. The dog's head popped up, its eyes wide. It shook like it was cold, then moved its snout toward the canopy. Fu shook her head and hunched over, only to have her suit chirp. She focused on the readouts hovering on the face bowl, and choked at the sign of the green draining away from her air meter. "'The hell?' she said, loud enough for the dog to turn its head, its snout and jaws now sparkling bright. Fu leaned over, and in the green light of the glow stick saw that the dog's face was covered in fuzz from the canopy. "'Are you licking the tent?' said Fu. The dog whined and put its head on the ground. Fu examined the hole the dog had made in the canopy. The layer of fuzz had weakened, creating a cluster of pinholes that quivered as the purified air escaped all that programming, and you can't help but sniff crotches and tongue-bathe everything. Foo picked up a handful of dirt and smeared it over the pinholes. The lubricant from the dog's tongue turned the dirt into mud, and it stuck well enough to the fuzz to keep the air from leaking out. Am I going to have to put you out for the night? asked Foo. The dog snuffled and finished cleaning its chops. Then it threw up on her. Foo couldn't move. She just looked at the red and green gel that covered her from her chest down to her knees. She wiped it away in great sheets and glared at the dog who just licked the ground. Fu looked at her gloved hands, now sparkling in the green glow stick light. She couldn't see any damage from the puke, and her suit said it was intact. She had owned this suit for most of her career, and to have it get damaged like this, she laughed at the thought. All the travel, all the hazards, all the debris, showers, and solar flares, and... Fu felt a lump in her throat. Her skin itched. She felt warm. No, she felt hot, like she was standing next to a fire. How could that be? She checked her suit again, saw the green temperature gauge, but sweat still trickled down the sides of her Snoopy cap and into her eyes. A burst of radio static filled her helmet. She shook her head. There was no one nearby. There was no fire. There was just her, and this dog, and her tent, and nothing. Nothing's working! Fu turned and saw Xigang in an EVA suit standing in front of her. He held out his arms, then a flare bright as a star lit up behind him. Fu could only see the light and hear Xigang screaming. She pushed her way backward, scrabbling to get to her feet, to get up, to get away. She burst through the tent and ran as fast as she could, Shigang yelling after her, I can't cycle the hatch, I can't! She had no idea how far she had run before the dog tackled her. They rolled, the dog barking and repeating her own words. Am I going to have to put you out for the night? Fu's heart pounded and she shoved the dog off her. The tent sat a hundred meters away, a Fu-sized hole in its side. There was no fire. There was no Shigang. There was just her, and the dog, and this suit. She touched the patch on her leg. It was covered with the dog's puke, and tiny puffs of air misted out. Whatever the puke was, it had seeped through the seams on the patch. Even the suit was letting her down. Fu crawled back into the tent, making sure to avoid the patch of puke. Just for kicks, she waved a glove over the mess to see just what the dog had vomited. Her eyes widened as the suit read off a list of psychoactive compounds, all of them much more powerful than the refined farmacules on the trees. This was the kind of stuff the wildcatters wanted to sell, refined farmacules. No, better than that, processed farmacules. She had her own wildcat operation with the trees and the dog. She could pay her way with whatever the dog puked up. Food laughed, then patted the dog on the head. You're going to make me rich. Within the hour, they were walking toward London, and Fu's footsteps felt light for the first time in months. The dog trotted alongside, its tail wagging as it looked up every now and then for instructions. If its obedience was a side effect from the pharmacules, she was ready to make the dog eat until it couldn't. Before she broke down the trees, Fu had her suit do some quick calculations— She'd have to plant her grove four more times in order to have air to get to London, but each stop would get her about half a liter of farmacules for the dog to eat. Fu would walk away with enough cash to pay for passage, the memorial park, and enough food and booze to last her the rest of her days. She could get G his tree. She could get him a hundred trees. She laughed and picked up the pace. The first two forests were easy to plant, she just set the trees in a tight circle around her, sat down, and deployed. After her air tanks had filled, she told the dog to get to licking. It had been happy to do so at the first forest, but it whimpered a bit at the second. You gotta pay your own way, mutt, she said. The dog obeyed, giving her a pile of greenish-red goo in return. She scooped the pharmacules into one of her now-empty gear pouches. She had ditched everything except for tools. She'd be hungry when she got to London, but buying a meal wouldn't be a problem once she arrived with a million yuan worth of goods. For the third forest, she set up at the top of a small hill. The wind was strong, which meant more pharmacules would fly by for the trees to gather. She hummed as the dog licked at the fuzz. I wouldn't sit long if I were you, said Qigong from behind. He was now wearing house clothes and his hair whipped about in the wind. If you were me, you wouldn't care what you had to say, said Fu. All your gear's been exposed to the pharmacules, he said. Every breath means another dose. And What about those micro tears? I appreciate your concern, Jigong, she said. Like the way you did before every EVA, making sure I knew about the weather outside. Like I didn't know how to look for flares or bursts. It's not too late, Wen. Just forget this stuff and keep walking and... And what? She said, spinning around and holding out her hands. And go home with nothing? It'll be kind of tough to pay for your tree, won't it? Is that what this is all about? Fu stopped, shaking her head and laughing. You... you mean this is about something else? Tears streamed down her face. Let's hear it. I'd love to... You're too far, Wen. Come back. Fu stopped laughing. Shigong held out his arms. His torn sleeves smoked. His arms, bright red, turned black. He stared at her, the terror in his eyes as he said, You're too far. Come back. Fu shook her head. I can't. His hair whipping about like flames. Come back, when." I can't. His skin. Red, now singed, turning black. Wen, please, let me back in. I'll contaminate the whole ship, yelled Fu, falling to her knees. I can't let you in. Shi on fire, his eyes pleading. Wen Guo, please. I can't, screamed Fu straining against a dozen hands, hands she knew weren't there, except she could feel them holding her back as Xigang faded away, back from the porthole into the blaze that consumed the forward compartment. She surged forward and fell to the ground, sobbing. Fu's tears plopped on the front of her face bowl. Xigong wore a suit, his hair already falling out. We can't fight anymore. Fu pounded the earth. They knew that hatch was faulty. Shigang wore a hospital gown, his bare scalp blistered, his skinny legs shaking. When? You'll carry on after, right? You'll plant that tree and visit, but you won't wither. Snot ran out Fu's nose. Of course, I'll plant that tree. She felt a hand on her shoulder, and Fu hauled herself up. There was Shigang, wearing his flight suit fresh out of the laundry, his hair high and tight. I know you tried, he said, his voice brighter than it should have been. Foo snorted to not back up. I shouldn't have let you go out there, she said. That was my job. He laughed, bright and clear, and Foo's chest tightened. Oh, bull's balls, he said. Last time I checked the navigator's job is to steer the ship. I wasn't talking about that said Fu. You're my husband. It's my job to look out for you. Is that what this is? He said. You think a tree is going to bring me back? No, said Fu, her throat growing thick. Nothing will, but I keep my promises. Gang smiled and put a hand on her face bowl. Fu leaned her head as close to his palm as she could. You promise not to wither, he said. I won't, she said. You are, he said, taking her helmet with both hands. If you stay here with this dog, you will. If I don't have a payoff, I can't buy your tree, she said, struggling out of her grip. I can't. Fu spun away, right into the forest. Something tugged against her left shoulder, and she pulled, hard, only to hear a horrible rip a great white cloud billowed out of the tear. The suit began to warble. Integrity compromised. Please remain calm. Conserve oxygen. Fu looked at her arms, her legs. Vapor popped away like steam rising from a hot flight deck. Something flashed in front of her, bright and red. She focused on the front of her face bowl and saw the O2 meter blinking, an angry stoplight. She slapped at the pouches looking for another patch. "'but she only found the pharmacules. "'The goo splashed out and she felt the tightness in her chest "'slowly giving away to warmth. "'She wasn't scared. "'That surprised her how she wasn't scared. "'Her head swam, light like a summer day. "'She Gangs knelt in front of her, his hands on her cheeks. "'She'd forgotten how rough his hands were and how good that felt. "'The dog nudged her. "'She laughed. It was so hard to laugh.' You need a name. You're a good dog. We need to find a tree and rest. With... Shigang. Home. The dog watched as Fu's last breaths fogged the face bowl. It whined and pawed her, but Fu didn't move. It ran over her last words. It knew how to follow commands. It grabbed one of the chopsticks in its jaws and trotted off in the direction they'd been heading, off to find its way home.
1: And there you go. Big, huge thank you to Adam. Adam, thank you so much for that. That's a, a, To have it as an original as well. Oh, man, that's lovely. Thank you so much. And Kate, lovely, absolutely lovely. Thank you so much indeed, the perrier. It has been an honour. So... Now you see, it's for Patreon. It's the end of the month, but I think it's the first of November for for everybody else there. So normally it's Jim at the end of the month, but it is for Patreon, but not for everybody else. So Jim,
0: sir,
3: greetings and vaudevillian vacillations, my centro lucicly eudoric listeners, and welcome to this October two thousand and eighteen science news update. I'm your host for this modestly stentorous science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. So every time you think that the idiot scientist stories of the month have run out, you find a new one. Just in time for the announcement of the Nobel Prizes this month, here is a story about one of this year's Nobel Prize winners, who appears to lack, let's say, common sense. According to The Guardian, A bizarre video has surfaced on YouTube featuring one of this year's physics Nobel winners, Dr. Gérard Moreau. I've seen it online, and it is, well, it's something. The clip is titled, Have You Seen Eli? It was made in 2013, and apparently with the aim of promoting extreme light infrastructure, ELI an 850 million euro project led by Moreau. The lyrics to the soundtrack, an upbeat reggae song, list the exciting goals of the laser facility. Reversing nuclear waste, understanding the universe, and, yes, even healing cancer. Sounds great, huh? Well, the actual video is, well, less great, in the accompanying footage, Moreau and colleague Dr. Jean-Paul Chambaret are dancing in the laser lab, apparently surrounded by a troop of female students. Two of the women fling off their semi-transparent lab coats to reveal white underwear underneath in an unexpected tease. The men wearing reflective laser goggles strike macho poses. The two professors are also seen at the front of a lecture theater teaching a class of students, one of whom a young woman lowers her eyelids at Moreau to reveal the words, I love Eli, a la Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then, this being France, everybody gets up and dances, some looking slightly awkward. Moreau then appears in a flashy BMW convertible running his hand over his silver hair as he arrives at the laser facility. It's not clear who funded the production. According to The Guardian, the French National Laboratory and Funding Agency denied any involvement. A spokesman for the funding agency said, quote, This video was made at the sole personal initiative of the researcher and his team, and our institution never relayed this video. Moreover, many people at the French National Laboratory and Funding Agency believe it is inappropriate to promote science in this way, unquote. Uh, eh, I disagree. There's nothing wrong with promoting science in the videos, as long as it's done tastefully. Moreau said in a statement, quote, I am sincerely and profoundly sorry for the image conveyed by this video. At the time this video was made, the objective was to popularize the research being done within the framework of the ELI project, and to break down the austerity that the field of science can sometimes transmit he continues with quote, "it is important that the scientific community recognize the role as well as the importance of each and every researcher regardless of gender" Unquote. the video was said to have been widely circulated in the laser physics community again according to the guardian dr jessica wade A physicist at Imperial College London said, quote, that idiotic four-minute clip managed to capture a lot of what is wrong with research, including hero worship of professors, bizarre power relationships, and sexism. I've not been a scientist for a long time, but so far I haven't met any professors who spend their days walking around research centers surrounded by half-naked dancing girls in lab coats, unquote. Um... Dancing girls would probably just get in the way, Dr. Wade. I suspect more labs would probably have them around. Anyway, the actual first story of the night is for all those of you listeners who complained last month that I had no stories outside of biology. This report concerns a new first in astronomy. The first exomoon has been detected. Yes, the first suspected exomoon was detected by doctors. David Kipping, and Alex Tichy of Columbia University. They used the Hubble Space Telescope to visualize a Neptune-sized moon orbiting a gas giant exoplanet 8,000 light-years away. That news was reported October 3rd in the journal Science Advances. The moon's existence, if confirmed, may challenge theories of how satellites are born. Kipping and Tichy pointed the aging and soon-to-be-retired Hubble Scope at the star Kepler-1625 for 40 hours on October 28th and 29th, 2017. The star was known to have a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting it every 287 days, thanks to earlier observations by the Kepler Space Telescope, which detects dips in starlight, and indicated that a planet was transmitting in front of the star. The two scientists had seen signs in the Kepler data of a second dimming, either before or after the planet passed, exactly what they would expect if an exomoon were orbiting that planet. The pair named the putative moon Kepler-1625b-1, or Neptune for short. But the researchers need more observations to be really sure that it is a moon, not another planet, or some sort of activity on the star. The Hubble telescope is about four times more sensitive to light than the Kepler telescope, so using the Hubble, Kipping and Tichy spotted a secondary dip in light after the planet crossed the star. The planet also started its 19-hour transit 77-foot-eight minutes earlier than expected, suggesting that something was gravitationally dragging on the planet. Both the signals detected are consistent with the so-called NEPT moon existing. Tichi says, quote, however, we are not cracking open champagne bottles just yet. We want to check with the Hubble again, hopefully during the next transit next year in May 2019. Things look very exciting and tantalizing and maybe even compelling, unquote. One reason for the caution of Kipping and Tichi is the strangeness of the moon itself. According to their paper, in our solar system, moons form in only one of three ways. First, by being kicked out of a planet itself by a massive impact. Second, by coalescing from gas and rock orbiting the planet. Or third, by being captured by the planet's gravity from elsewhere. Kepler-1625b-1 is a gas giant as big as Neptune. I mean, that's huge. There is nothing in the solar system in the least like that and it's unclear how those three scenarios could create a moon as big as Kepler-1625b1. Teichi finishes with, quote, Kepler-1625b1, if real, would be about 10 times as massive as the mass of all the moons and terrestrial planets in the solar system combined. This suggests that this moon would have formed in a completely different way Than any moon in the solar system. Speaking of exomoons and exoplanets, there was a story out of NASA at the end of September that relates to those searches. According to a NASA press release, the next exoplanet hunt is officially on. NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS, T E S S, which launched in April, has taken its first wide sky science image and has confirmed its first exoplanet. Wahoo! Another one! So TESS spotted a new planet being called Pi-Men-C, crossing in front of its bright sun-like star about 60 light-years from Earth, and it blocked a bit of starlight. The data was collected from July 25th to August 22nd, and that Transit revealed that the planet is a bit more than about two times the Earth's radius, and it quickly orbits its star about every 6.27 days. The researchers found previously unnoticed evidence of the planet in data from the HARPS spectrograph and the Anglo-Australian Planet Search, which have monitored the star Pi Minci over the past 20 years. Those observations show how the planet's gravity tugged on the star letting researchers determine that the planet's mass is about 4.8 times that of Earth. The Anglo-Australian Planet Search also previously revealed another planet, and this one was about 10 times the mass of Jupiter, orbiting Pi Menci every 5.7 years. Combining the new Earth-sized planet's mass and radius shows that it has a similar density to pure water, although the test team warns Quote, though of course we should not imagine the planet to be a globe of water. It probably has a core made of iron and rock surrounded by an ocean or atmosphere of lighter materials like water, methane, hydrogen, and helium, unquote. The next story we have actually discussed previously, it's a bit controversial and I have my own opinions on why it has been so unsuccessful, but I suspect you have your own as well. What am I talking about? SETI, our search for extraterrestrial life. Previous stories that I have reported have suggested that humans have not contacted aliens because it is likely many civilizations go dark quickly or simply do not age well and they cannot contact us. Well, Dr. Jason Wright of Penn State suggests that a paper posted in September at the online journal Archive.org that we have probably seen no aliens yet using SETI because we are simply so amazingly inefficient at it, even after 60 years. Wright's new calculations show that if space is an ocean, then we've barely dipped in a toe. The volume of observable space, home so far for SETI, says Wright, is comparable to searching the volume of a large hot tub for evidence of fish in Earth's oceans. Basically, if you pulled out a random hot tub's worth of water in the ocean, you wouldn't always expect to see a fish. In 2010, SETI astronomer Dr. Jill Tarter imagined a quote unquote cosmic haystack of naturally occurring radio waves she could sift through for the proverbial needle of an artificial alien beacon. Her haystack went beyond physical space to include factors such as an impossible signal's duration, frequency, variations, and strength, as well as the sensitivity of radio telescopes on Earth that would presumably detect a signal. Why am I even mentioning Tartar? Well, she concluded that searches that had been done had covered about a drinking glass worth of seawater, way less than even Wright calculated. Well, Wright has updated Tartar's calculation by devising a slightly different haystack including factors like frequency and bandwidth aliens might broadcast in. It also included more recent SETI searches. Converting the volume to liters for the sake of analogy, Wright concluded that SETI has covered the equivalent of about 7,700 liters out of about 1.335 billion trillion liters of water in the Earth's oceans but hey, it's worth a drinking glass full, right? Wright concludes with, quote, we're finally getting to the point today that we have a chance of finding something depending on how much there is to find, unquote. The next story brings us back to biology. So back in the mid-90s, before the Human Genome Project was really getting started, if you asked any scientist how many genes the human genome has, you would have probably gotten an answer of anywhere between 50,000 to over 100,000. And that's a pretty big range. And that was because we did not know yet how many genes there were, but we had a pretty good idea, though still in complete view, of how many proteins are made in a human cell or how many mRNA transcripts are produced. And yes, those are both pretty big numbers. It turned out years later when the human genome was finally sequenced that the number was far lower than anybody had figured originally. It was first pegged at about 25,000, but even that number has been argued about for the last 10 years or so. It turns out that a single gene may make several different proteins because of a phenomenon called alternative transcript splicing, That means that a single messenger mRNA may be chopped up in several different ways to give you different proteins. That's why those 1990s scientists thought there were so many genes and messenger mRNAs around. They knew nothing of alternative splicing at the time. But, as you can readily tell, it turns out now that figuring out how many genes are in the Human Genetic Instruction Manual isn't as easy as those scientists once thought. Also, to make things even more complicated, the very definition of a gene has changed since the completion of the Human Genome Project more than 15 years ago. Genes used to be defined as stretches of DNA that contained instructions that copied into RNA and then got turned into proteins. As I said earlier, researchers still don't entirely agree on how many of these protein-coding genes there are. Dr. Steve Salzberg of Johns Hopkins has now published a new gene count of 21,306, which was published August 30th in BNC Biology. But in the last decade, researchers have learned that not all genes produce proteins. Many scientists have expanded the definition of a gene to include those that make RNAs that, instead of being turned into proteins, have other functions in the cell. Salzberg says, quote, numbers of RNA-producing genes, also called non-coding genes, are even more up in the air than protein-coding genes. We have already found more of these RNA genes, 25,525, than protein-coding ones, and our count doesn't even include microRNAs and other recently discovered small RNAs, unquote. Um, microRNAs and small interfering RNAs called siRNAs are short regulatory sequences that are regularly produced to control whether messenger RNAs are translated or not. And even without those small RNAs and siRNAs, which he is not counting, Salzburg's new total of human genes comes to at least 46,831. Other scientists have debated the estimate, but Salzberg says, quote, I will not be surprised if 10 years from now we still don't have an agreed-upon number, unquote. Alrighty, this next story is just one of those that annoys me. I'm not sure whether it will turn out to be true or not, but I just find it entirely irksome. Why? Because this is another story that suggests that the human microbiome controls the human body. I feel like I've been covering these stories for years, and yet here is another. If we are to believe half the reports, then we are just zombies that bacteria control for their own benefit. So what is the newest mess? Could disinfectants that we commonly use to clean our homes cause our children to become overweight? Dr. Anita Kozerski of the University of Alberta and leader of the Canadian Healthy Infant Longitudinal Development Study, CHILD, analyzed the gut microbiota of more than 750 children aged 3 to 4 months and looked at the kids' exposure to disinfectant, detergents, and so-called eco-friendly cleaning products used at the home. After controlling for a wide range of other potential factors, Her results suggested a clear dose-dependent link between the mother's reported use of disinfectant in the home, changes in the level of some types of normal gut bacteria in their infants, and the kids' weight at age one to three years. In contrast, eco-friendly cleaning products didn't increase the likelihood of children becoming overweight. Korsierski says in this long quote, quote, we found that infants living in households with disinfectants being used at least weekly were twice as likely to have higher levels of gut microbes, lacnosperaceae, at age three to four months. When they were three years old, their body mass index was higher than children not exposed to heavy use of disinfectants as infants, unquote. Kosierski and her group report their results in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in a paper titled, Postnatal Exposure to Household Disinfectants, Infant Gut Microbiota, and Subsequent Risk of Overweight in Children. I guess what annoys me about this article is less the idea that environmental toxins affect us adversely, than the idea that everything is now linkable to the microbiome. Kozierski says, infancy is the key time in microbiome development. Quote, we start with a fewer number of species and they increase over the first year of life. The different kinds of species increase, some decrease. By the time we're three years old, we each have a microbiome that we can call our own and which remains with us throughout life. Microbiome changes caused by some environmental factors, such as antibiotics, can change that microbiome, but they tend to be transitory and normal childhood pattern is resumed. Frequent home use of disinfectants can alter that development and balance, unquote. kozierski says she found frequent use of disinfectant as high as once daily increased the chance of an infant having higher levels of a particular bacteria, Lachnosperaceae, in their gut, and also increased the risk of the infants becoming overweight by age three. And, and here is where Kozierski's data really starts to make my head hurt. She says that the link between eco-friendly product use, reduced fecal enterobacteriaceae abundance, and reduced incidence of overweight at age 3 didn't appear causal. What? So using disinfectants and getting fat babies is causal, but not using them and getting skinny babies is not. I'm very confused by this. She knows, quote, those infants growing up in households with heavy use of eco-cleaners had lower levels of gut microbes, Enterobacteraceae. However, we found no evidence that these gut microbiome changes caused the reduced obesity risk. Our analyses were controlled for other well-known factors that affect microbiota, so it wasn't those factors that explained any of the results we obtained. In the case of the eco-friendly products, I must admit we were a bit surprised, unquote. And apparently they weren't just surprised, they were confused. Okay. I suppose whether those results make any sense or not, it's probably a good idea to use less disinfectant around babies. Any extra chemical that a baby is exposed to, it can't be good for it. I know it's hard to believe, but dirt is good for a baby's immune system. Yes, good. Now Don't get carried away with that concept. There is not being worried about a bit of dirt and then there's just being psychotic about the use of cleaning products. Anyway, last story of the night is a bit of good news from the cancer therapy side of science. If you've known anybody with pancreatic cancer, you know how horrible that is. Pancreatic cancer is one of the most recalcitrant cancer types that are known, and the survival rate has been abysmal for years. Well, that may be changing. This year, about 55,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and more than about 44,000 of them will die. And that makes it one of the deadliest cancers there is. Currently, the pancreatic cancer five-year survival rate is only 7%. And drugs to treat this aggressive disease are limited and in the main pretty ineffectual. However, now Dr. Muad Ederkoy and his crew from the Cancer Institute of Cedar, Sinai may have found a reason to be hopeful as results from their new studies show that a newly developed drug called Metavert can prevent the most common type of pancreatic cancer From growing and spreading, at least in laboratory mice, the findings from this new study published last month in Gastroenterology were in an article entitled, An Inhibitor of GSK3B and HDAC Kills Pancreatic Cancer Cells and Slows Pancreatic Tumor Growth and Metastasis in Mice. The journal article demonstrated that MetaVert could prevent patients from developing a resistance to currently used pancreatic cancer chemotherapies. Etterkoit explains, quote, This is an exciting step toward improving survival rates in pancreatic cancer patients. If the results are confirmed in humans, we could have a drug with the potential to significantly extend the lives of patients with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, which is very difficult to treat. Unquote. 95% of pancreatic cancer patients are diagnosed with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, which develops from cells lining the small tubes of the pancreas. Pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma can be difficult to treat because the cancer cells prompt normal cells that reside in the pancreas, called stellate cells, to produce pancreatic scar tissue and the scar tissue makes it difficult for chemotherapy agents and blood to enter the pancreas. The cancer and stellate cell interaction also creates an environment that stimulates local tumor growth and cancer spread to different sites in the body. Additionally, the activity levels of certain enzymes rev up, fueling resistance to cancer treatments. Etterkoi says that, quote, Metavert significantly reduced survival of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma cells. Cells incubated with Metavert in combination with irradiation and paclitaxel and gematabine have reduced survival compared to cells incubated with either agent alone. Metavert increased killing of drug-resistant pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma cells by paclitaxel and gemcitabine. Unquote. Over a four-year period, the investigators designed and synthesized new chemicals that inhibit cancer cell activity. They discovered that MetaVert blocked drug resistance and also significantly boosted the positive effects of radiation and those two chemotherapy agents that he mentioned in the quote. In one of the mouse studies, MetaVert increased the survival rate by about 50%. The authors conclude, quote, in studies of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma cells and two mouse models, we found MetaVert to induce cancer cell apoptosis, reduced migration and expression of stem cell markers, and slow growth of tumor and metastases. We are now working to develop a version of the drug to test in humans. Sounds great. Well, that's all for me for now. Keep counting those human genes. Don't count your moons before they're hatched. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
1: And there you go. Big thank you, Jim. Jim, thank you so much. Indeedy. Yes, indeedy, indeedy. Well, that is today's show. I I, I do hope you've enjoyed it and you thought, well, maybe, you know, for Christmas there, run up with Christmas, we'll chuck a little bit that Tones Way. That would be fantastic. Do come back next week. That will be even better, though. That's the main thing. Until then, just like to say,
0: good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get much, I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions, I'm rooting, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets, am pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I want to talk to you I talk to you. Myself on the radio wave, I might be someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by.